trespasses and sins in which you walk. And then if you skip down to verse 5, he says, we have been made alive. So tonight we're going to look at this example that the Apostle Paul provides about the incredible greatness of the power of God at work, the power to transform us, the power to change us. Now, in order to fully understand how great the power of God is to transform us, we need to know, first of all, just how bad our situation was before his transforming work. And so if you look in the first three verses here in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about what we were outside of Jesus Christ. You've already seen in verse 1 the simple way Paul describes our condition outside of Christ. He says, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Those are two words that basically describe all the ways we can violate the will of God. Actively and passively. Sins of omission and commission. Transgressions and sins. He says, here's the problem. You were dead in those. And obviously the death he talks about here is different from the death which God raised Jesus Christ. This is a death not of a physical sort, but of a spiritual sort, because of our sins. The Bible says we are separated from God. Or if you go over to chapter 4, Paul describes it like this in verse 18, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. That's spiritual death. When we are in our sins, the Bible says, we are separated from the presence of God, separated from the life-giving presence of God. Now, of course, not everybody on the planet recognized that separation in Paul's time. And many people today either do not recognize it or plain just don't care about God. Well, you know, that's what our world is like. You and I as Christians, as we look upon the world, we are looking at people who are dead. They just don't recognize it. They are like the widows Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 5, who are disobedient and live reckless lives of debauchery. He says they are dead, even though they are alive. They are alive physically, but they are cut off from God. Quite honestly, when you look at the people in the world, People who are separated from God, you don't have to look too long, or you don't have to look too closely to even recognize the very stench of spiritual death in their lives. Paul says that is our situation. We were dead in trespasses and sins in in which we once walked. Notice that Paul talks about you in verse 1 and 2, and we in verse 3. He might mean you Ephesians and we apostles, but I think rather what he is talking about is you Gentiles and us Jews. That seems to be his language on down in chapter 2, verse 11, where he refers to you Gentiles. And his point here is this. Jews and Gentiles all have the same problem, spiritual death. Now what causes that problem? Paul mentions three things. He says in verse 2, following the course of this world. He means here world, not in the sense of the globe or the planet. He means 
world as in the sense of the world alienated from God, or the world in rebellion against God, and the world in the sense of do not love the world or the things of the world. He says part of the problem is there is this external pressure, the world trying to conform us to its ways, its ways that are alien to God. That's problem number one. And if you think about your life before you were a Christian, you will think about times in your life when you succumbed to the pressures of the world to live like it wanted you to. Here's the second reason he says that we are dead. Not only do we follow the course of this world, he goes on to say in verse 2, we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now what in the world is he talking about? Prince of the power of the air. Well, this goes back to a certain way of thinking in the first century, which thought of the earth as a sphere of man, heaven as a sphere of God, and the air as what is in between. And what force is there that is operative, that is more than man and less than God? Well, it would be the spiritual forces. The spiritual forces of wickedness are the ones Paul mentions over in chapter 6 where he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual powers of darkness. So in other words, when he talks about the prince of the power of the air, that's just an unusual description to our ears of someone all too familiar, and that is Satan. And what Paul is saying then is, part of the problem is we succumb to pressures of the world. But we also have to recognize is there is an evil force who is tempting us. There is an evil force who is also seducing us. An evil force that is also pulling us away from God. Remember in chapter 4 when Paul says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You know what the next line is? And do not give the devil enough. The Bible certainly teaches that there are certain spiritual forces that turn us away from God. Paul says that's the second thing that has happened here. You followed the world, and then you followed the devil. And then he says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the external pressures of the world, the supernatural pressures of the devil, and then the internal pressures of our own lust, which Paul says here leads us to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. It causes us to turn away from what God says, to serve the whims of our particular fleshly lusts and go where our impulses lead us. Those are the reasons Paul gives as our status as those who are spiritually dead. And what's the result of this? He says at the end of verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath is simply a Jewish way of saying, you are those who deserve wrath. That's another way of saying we are spiritually dead, because God's wrath is his, is his alienation. God's wrath is his eviction from his presence. That's what Paul says we've come to deserve because of our sins. 
Take notice here, Paul says at the end of verse 3, that we are children of wrath by nature. This could mean a couple of different things. Some people think that what it means is that by the nature of our very birth, we automatically come into this world under the wrath of God. That somehow the sin of Adam and Eve was transposed unto us, and therefore we deserve condemnation simply by being born into a family of human beings. That's not what I believe Paul has in mind here. After all, if you go back up to verse 1 and verse 2, he clearly states that you are dead in the transgressions and sins in which you walked. Not what others did, but what you have done. Another thing that this phrase by nature can mean is by instinct or by habit. For instance, in Romans 2 and 14, Paul says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. In other words, here he is talking about Gentiles that seem to have an intuitive, instinctive feel of what God's law has to say. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 is that when you lead the kind of life that is controlled by the world, prompted by the devil, driven by internal lusts, then what becomes instinctive, what becomes habitual, becomes your nature. You are someone under the wrath of God. Now, I don't want to present the view that somehow we are all born guilty of sin like the teaching of original sin. What I don't want to minimize is the very real sense in which the Bible teaches there is human depravity or moral corruption or wickedness. The issue is, how do we get that depravity? And what I'm suggesting to you is that you are not inherently from someone else. Rather, it is by our own choices that we have become depraved. And it is depravity nonetheless. It is spiritual death nonetheless. It is to deserve the wrath of God for what we are. Now that is the ugly picture of humanity. Jew and Gentile, all of us, here in the first three verses. This is not just some isolated, primitive tribe with backwards customs Paul is talking about. Do you see that point? Paul is talking about a people right here in 2018 in Fort Myers, Florida. This is, or was, the status of us all, alienated from God. And then the first word of verse 4. The first word of verse 4. But. But God. But God does something. Then in the next set of verses, what Paul talks about is what God has done for us in Christ. You have to go all the way down to verses 5 and 6 to get the verbs, but God did what? Well, what God does, Paul says, is he raised us and made us alive and seated us with him. That's what he says God has done for us in Christ. But specifically what I want us to notice is why God has done why has God raised us from death to life? 
Why has God raised us to be the throne of Jesus Christ? Why has God seated us with him? Well, here's the first reason. In verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. This is the first reason. The word mercy means to show kindness or concern for those in need. We sometimes talk about a mission of mercy to help somebody who is in need. Well, I can't think of any better, better way to describe the people that we described in verses 1, 2, and 3 than those in desperate need. But God, rich in mercy, but God, rich in kindness and concern for those of us in need. That's the first reason. Secondly, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What Paul says here is not simply that God loves us in Jesus Christ, not simply that God loves us when we are living a life of obedience and faithfulness. What he says is that God was rich in mercy to us because of his love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were a wretched people, the people described in the first three verses. God still loved us. Do you remember the story in 2 Samuel, the story of one of Saul's concubines? Her name was Rispa. Do you remember the story? Do you remember what happens in this story? Well, to make a long story short, King Saul had violated an agreement with a people called the Gibeonites. He slaughtered them. When David becomes king, he tries to make amends, to create justice in this situation. But what they say they demand as restitution is the death of seven of Saul's sons. And a couple of them were sons by this woman, Rispa. You remember that story? These sons were taken out and executed and left for public exposure as a sign of humiliation. But the Bible says that Rispa went out and remained with the corpses of her sons and personally fought off wild animals and any scavengers. And it says that she did it, if I remember right, from the spring rain to the barley harvest. Basically a period of four months. And I don't want to get grotesque, but I mean, let's face it. What would those corpses have looked like after just a short time hanging there? Do you see that mother's love? Even though her sons were dead, and even though they were in a period of decay, she loved them so much she was willing to do whatever she could to keep the scavengers away. It's a beautiful picture in the midst of a horrible story. The picture of the love of a mother. You see, Paul says here that even when we were dead, and in that grotesque condition, that is described in Ephesians 2. God loved us. And because he loved us, he desired to save us. It says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. 
So here's the third reason. We have mercy, we have love, and we have grace. This is a word we get the English word charity from. It means a gift. The salvation that God has given us is simply by his own gracious decision to give a gift that none of us deserve, which is to give us new life. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's another way of describing the spiritual realm. And from a spiritual point of view, what the Bible says is, you're alive. What the Bible says is, you've been exalted. The Bible says that you are seated with Jesus spiritually. You may not feel like royalty. You may not feel like you are on a throne anywhere. But what the Bible says is, because you are in Jesus, you share his blessings. He has been raised and exalted. Now, therefore, you are. Just as you have been raised from death to life, just like he is. Now that, now that is what God has done for us. And in verse 7, Paul says, He did this so that in the coming ages he might show he might show what? Show off? Show his stuff? Did you know God is a show off, so to speak? Do you know what God loves to show off? What he loves to show off is the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. And do you know how he shows that off? By taking desperate, despicable sinners, transforming them from death to life by his grace so that he can show for all time. He can show here is my, here is what my love and grace and my kindness look like. Look what I have done for these people. Now if you want to see a great commentary on this passage, turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, which is a parallel passage. And notice what Paul says in the text to supplement what we have just read here. Colossians chapter 2. You can see that we are in the same subject matter because in verse 13, Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses. And he uses the same language, made alive together with him. And then back up one verse. And see when that took place. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you also were raised with him. In Ephesians 2. Paul is talking about being raised with Christ. Here he uses the same expression. Raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. That's what Paul was talking about at the end of Ephesians 1. The powerful work of God raising Jesus from the dead now raises us from the dead. The same thing Paul is talking about here. Specifically, he says the time when this occurs is in our baptism. Verse 12, now I realize in a lot of circles the notion of baptism having any connection with conversion 
or salvation is a foreign idea to them. But what Paul says here is, the time in which we are raised with Christ is in our baptism. Here is the key thing to understand in this passage. Colossians 2, Paul does not refer to baptism as a work that we do. Who is doing the work in this passage? What does he say in Colossians 2 and verse 12? That we have been raised with him in baptism through faith in the working of God. That we have been raised with him in baptism through faith in the working of God. In baptism, we are placing our faith in that. As we are, as we are united with Jesus in the likeness of his death, we will also be raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And there will be the work of God that accomplishes that. All that we are supplying here is our own faith and trust that God will indeed do this. And so we come to share in the story of Jesus Christ. We come to share in this story of his resurrection. We share in the story of his exaltation. By God's grace and through our faith and at the time of our baptism. So if you go back with me to Ephesians 2 and verse 8, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may love. I'll just say this. Any person who gets submerged in water thinking, look what I'm doing to earn my salvation, has completely missed the point of what the Bible teaches. What the Bible says is that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in full faith and confidence. Full faith and confidence in his death and full faith and confidence in his resurrection. Sharing him at the time of our baptism we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 10. Because here in Ephesians 2, verse 10, the text changes from what we were to what we are. He says in Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are his workmanship. I was curious about what this word means because in my mind, it has always carried the idea of Maybe like craftsmanship. But really when you look this up, it has to do with the work of creation. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is, remember this passage over in Romans 1 when Paul says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Well, that whole phrase that whole phrase is this word, workmanship. And when you think about it, Ephesians 2 and 10, what is the next word? Craftsmanship what? Craftsmanship created. So really the idea here that Paul is getting at is we are the new creation of God. Now we know how amazing God's original work of creation was. Again, imagine the power of God Almighty just speak and the universe explodes into existence. But here's another display of his great power. By his grace and his kindness, by his love to create a new people. That's what Paul says we are. 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. But notice what we are created for. We are created for good works. Our good works are not what's going to save us, but our good works are the result of our salvation. They are the purpose of our salvation. That's what God has saved us for. You might remember back over in Ephesians chapter 1, in the midst of that great and expansive look at all of what God has done, he says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. God has always, always in his word, saved people for a purpose. He saved Israel from Egypt to be his people to serve him. And he saves us not just to be what we were, but to be transformed, to be a new creature, creation. I mean, I love that old imitation song, just as I am, because it is true. God will embrace us into his family and fellowship as we are, as Ephesians 2 is saying here. But God doesn't leave us as we were. He changes us. He transforms us. And what he wants us to be is this vivid new creation created for good works, works which God prepared beforehand. That we could walk in them. That is what God has all along envisioned. Is to have a people who will start to share his character. A people who will display his attributes. A people who will then really begin to take on family resemblance. So that's what we were. And that's what God has done. And now that's what we are. Compare the sadness of someone dying. The image of death. Think about the transformation from death to life. The transformation which this passage promises us. And I'll just simply say this. As sad as it is when someone dies, if you take to heart what Paul says in this passage, there is something more sad. And what is more sad is for those who are spiritually dead to be given the gospel and refuse it. You know, what dead person would refuse a chance to come back to life? To a new and glorious transformed life. Who would turn that aside? Who would resist the kindness and grace and love of God? That's just what happens when the gospel is spurned. That's what happens when God has, when what God has done in Jesus is neglected. That's what happens when what God has done in Jesus is ignored. Or when it's rejected. If you are here tonight and you've been neglecting the chance for eternal life that our Father in Heaven has put forth through His Son, Jesus the Christ, and you are now ready to obey the commands to believe, repent, confess Jesus' name, and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins, 
We have water prepared here now. Let nothing hinder you from obeying the gospel now. Right now. If you need, if you need some more study, see one of us after. With the love of Jesus, we'll be glad to help. And if you need prayers, or have sins to confess, we, if you're willing to obey the gospel tonight, we lovingly ask you forward. We'll be glad to help. Together now as we stand and serve.